Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferrans. What it took for General Motors to finally settle with the UAW this week. Now pharmacy workers are speaking out on workplace rights. Some say we better get ready for Farmageddon. Today on the show, the United Labor Agency, and we take a deep dive into manufacturing. A new study out from the Rand Corporation. Welcome to the Wednesday, November 1st edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Dave Meganhart will be our first guest on the show today, longtime supporter of America's Workforce, and for over three decades, he has served as Executive Director of the United Labor Agency, ulagency.org. And we figure this is a good time for Dave to talk a little bit more about the ULA and how they have changed over the years. This is an agency that was formed 52 years ago, 1971, in Cleveland, Ohio, by the Cleveland AFL-CIO, the UAW, and the Teamsters. And when they first started out, they essentially just provided information and referral services to union members. They conducted uh, union counselor training classes, things like that. And then, as they grew, they provided strike assistance, a juvenile justice program, And then in 1976, the ULA formed a volunteer committee known as the Cultural Arts Committee. Whole idea there to encourage labor participation in the cultural arts. Then they uh, created a community hiring hall with local social service organizations. And that was pretty much to address the problem of the uh, exploitation of day laborers. I mean, there's so many taking advantage of it. And then uh, in 2008, there was a big change. That's when the ULA focused on workforce development. This focus led the agency to develop what they call a demand-driven model of workforce development services. So, you know, when you got new jobs popping up, well, people need the skills to work in those jobs. And that's where the ULA comes in. They, they make sure that they connect you as a worker with those skills so you can remain in the workforce, make good money, make you know good wages, get good benefits with the jobs of now and the jobs of the future. We're also going to talk about the Unsung Heroes Dinner, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, Thursday, November 16th. And that'll be taking place in downtown Cleveland. This is a great event, and I've had the opportunity to uh, emcee it over the years. And this is the time where they pick about maybe 10, 12 individuals from the community that work behind the scenes for labor organizations, whether they're getting out the vote, whether they're doing things in the office, going beyond the call of duty. And this is a great night where they salute all those individuals. We'll also get an update on the ULA's mental health services. So Dave Meganhart will cover all of that as our first guest. And then later in the show, we're going to go out to the West Coast and be joined by two very, very smart women. 
let, let me let me run down their uh, their bios here. It's Elisa Abraham and Christine Mulhern. Lisa is an economist at the Rand Corporation, and her research examines mechanisms for gaps in labor market outcomes with a focus on underrepresented groups. And she has examined barriers to the recruitment, retention, and earnings equality of women, especially in high-skilled jobs. She completed her Ph.D. in economics at Harvard, and this was just three years ago. And prior to her uh, Ph.D., she got a master's in economics and management from the London School of Economics. She previously was special assistant to the assistant secretary for economic policy at the U.S. Treasury Department. How about that? Then we have Christine Mulhern. Also, she works with uh, Lisa, but in another city. Both of them work for the Rand Corporation, and her focus is on the economics of education and labor. Her research studies how students and workers navigate education and career pathways, including whether and where to enroll in post-secondary education and how social networks, school resources, and technology influence these choices. In fact, Christine has studied the effects of uh, high school counselors on educational attainment. And um, she also looks into uh, educational technologies and the inequality in education. That's an interesting topic in itself. You live in a very wealthy district. You're going to get a better education than someone in the inner city where there's a lot of poverty. We'll touch on that. She, too, received her Ph.D. from Harvard University. And what we're going to talk about is a report that Rand recently came out with showing that fewer than 40% of students with a manufacturing-related credential from a public Ohio post-secondary institution work in Ohio manufacturing one year after completing that credential. The report notes that there are significant demographic differences in terms of the pipeline of students earning manufacturing-related credentials. Now, this is just focused again on Ohio, and they found out that more than 80% of those students are white. More than 85% are male. Additionally, among manufacturing workers, retention is lower for women than among men. And wages are lower for women and people of color relative to male and white workers with the same education. So why is this happening? Well, there's some speculation that we're going to get into. But uh, it's important to know that there's problems to know the makeup of, well, in this case, manufacturing. So we know what we need to do to change it. So these two individuals will be joining us later in the show to discuss all of this and more. And now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. And I mean assets, $17 billion in assets under advisement, serving the needs of Taft-Hartley funds, corporations, public funds, endowments, foundations, as well as religious organizations. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. Well, the UAW strike is pretty much over. The uh, the members, well, they'll soon be voting on the uh, contracts. Some are saying they could vote it down. That is highly unlikely. But uh, 
if everything goes as planned, we're talking about contracts that will not expire until April 30th of 2028. Okay. Well, what happened here? Well, GM was holding out, as you know, and they were losing some money, like $200 million a week. When the CEO of GM, Mary Barra, realized that this is not good for the bottom line, she went to the UAW Detroit headquarters over the weekend. She was joined by their manufacturing chief, Jerry Johnson. Those talks started late Sunday, and then they were able to close a deal with UAW President Sean Fain and other bargainers early Monday that pretty much will end the six-week work stoppage. By the way, that was uh, Sean Fain's 55th birthday. He turned 55 on Sunday, and it capped a, a number of days of agreements that still need to be ratified by the members at Ford, GM, and Stellantis. Ford agreed to a new contract last week, and then Stellantis on Saturday, which put the pressure on uh, on GM. All three companies, all of them, agreed to raise general wages by 25% for top assembly plant workers, add cost of living adjustments, then that means their pay goes up about 30% by the time the contracts end. The uh, GM deal, according to industry analysts, is a big victory, a huge victory for the UAW. And uh, many of them have looked at what happened in the Great Recession of 2007, 2008. That's when the two-tier wage system started. And Fain said that's got to come to an end. And that pretty much happened with the uh, negotiations. Now, GM, they're losing millions of dollars each week. And... uh, When they reached a deal with Stellantis on Saturday, Sean Fain said, well, we got to push him over the finish line. So what they did on uh, over the weekend, they said Spring Hill, Tennessee is going to go on strike. We're talking 18,000 workers at one of GM's most profitable plants. When that happened, that's when Mary Barra, the CEO, said, okay, enough is enough. We got to get a deal here. Mike Herta who's president of UAW Local 602, which was on strike in Lansing, Michigan. Now, he is one of several hesitant to celebrate the deal, saying the devil's in the details. I want to see what they actually came up with. So uh, that's going to be happening now and probably into next week. And then you got the rank and file vote. Uh, Also on Monday, we need to talk about this, 8,200 Stellantis workers in Canada represented by a different union, Unifor. They briefly went on strike before reaching a deal that comes with base hourly wage increases of nearly 20% for production workers. Now, some are saying the cost of cars and trucks are going to go up because of this. In fact, a, a study by Moody's Investor Service, they figure labor costs will rise over a billion dollars for Stellantis, $1.2 $1.2 billion at GM, $1.4 billion at Ford. The union, however, said, now, wait a minute. Companies are making billions of dollars in profits per year, and they can't afford to pay workers to make up for previous concessions. The UAW contends labor expenses are only 4 maybe 5% of a vehicle's cost. So we'll see what happens here. But that's a... That's a snapshot of what happened here in the last couple of days. Now, as the UAW 
celebrates these victories, pharmacy workers across the nation have just begun to escalate their fight for workplace rights. Employees at chain pharmacies, we're talking Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid, have launched a nationwide walkout to protest unsafe working conditions. This is happening right now. The walkout dubbed the Pharmageddon by organizers builds upon pharmacy walkouts that occurred last month. The participating pharmacy workers who have received official support from the American Pharmacists Association are hopeful that the walkouts will push companies to address what they call chronic and long-standing problems of understaffing and burnout in the industry. At large pharmacy chains, workers who are already short-staffed are forced to complete tasks according to strict time-based metrics, which have threatened patient safety and also up the pressures for pharmacy workers. The issues reached a tipping point during the pandemic when frontline pharmacy workers face added workplace demands and dangers due to amplified healthcare needs. The walkout, which will shed light on the deteriorating workplace conditions at pharmacies across the country, is planned to continue through the end of today. So if you go to a pharmacy, you see something a little bit different. Now you know why. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dave Meganhardt on behalf of the United Labor Agency. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at afge.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The the United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the US, US, Canada, Canada, and and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers. Standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. 
Let's go to line number one. Welcome one of our longtime regulars, and that would be Dave Meganhart on behalf of the United Labor Agency, ULAgency.org. Dave has been executive director for over three decades, and during that time, there's been a lot of changes. Now, there's a couple of events I want to talk about. Dave, uh, welcome back to the show, and uh, you've seen a lot of changes, as I indicated, and I, I think it's important to uh, show to our listeners uh, I mean, you go back 52 years, not you, <laughs> 52 <laughs> years at the UL agency, but, uh, but the agency, and I was mentioning this at the top of the show, how it morphed. I mean, you started off as uh, kind of like a referral service, and now you're connecting people with jobs. And, and if they don't have the skills, you find those skills for them. So I'm just right. wondering, and we get new listeners to the show each and every day. Maybe you can kind of go through the history of the ULA and, uh, and talk to me about those changes and where you are today. Go ahead, brother. Sure. It's, well, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I think, you know, when you talk about the United Labor Agency, it's very interesting. You know, you're talking about the history of Cleveland. You're talking about the history of uh, service need and how, and it really, you're also talking about how nonprofits, if they're worth their salt, if they're paying attention, and how they can change to um, address, you know, different community needs. So originally the ULA started out as a kidney dialysis center. Its first name was actually Kidney Dialysis Inc. And a couple of union members had saw a need uh, for some of their membership to get kidney dialysis. And this is before all the di- dialysis centers were um, around the city. And they did a candy bar drive, and they, you know, did, they did fundraising. They did everything, and they bought these mobile dialysis machines and went to members' houses to do um, dialysis. You know, from there, of course, that you know, they weren't doctors, they weren't medical. It's uh, that they, but they saw the that they could make an impact, right? And these again, these were like union leaders and union workers that did this. So the name was changed to United Labor Agency. And, you know, so there's been a, there's been a multitude of things that's been over the um, decades, uh, over its history, but some of the highlights would be, you know, began with union council, the union counseling association. So this was kind of also a very unique uh, uh, idea in that we'd have people come in, we'd do training for, for uh, frontline union workers or union stewards. Uh, to talk about the social service network and fabric of the uh, of the city, and to be able to identify what uh, rank and file or their union members, uh, their brothers and sisters, um, were experiencing. So, like, if you thought that somebody was having an alcohol and drug problem, if you thought there was some kind of domestic dispute, they would be able to find the uh, resources for them to be able to, you know, help to solve that problem. It became huge. It was a huge network. Um, we had, you know, organizations, you know, thousands of people through that. And I thought it was, it was a great example of people that were activists or people that really cared about their brothers and sisters and being able to connect them and help them in that was really outside the collective bargaining agreement. It was really that covenant that unions, I think, foster in people and helping each other. Um, so that, and, you know, we, that even that program uh, has changed over time. Uh, we now call it the Union Community Activist Network, but it has some of the same tenets of the Union Council Association. You know, from there, we had a, a halfway house uh, for people that were re- returning citizens coming into, uh, back into society, reintegrated. We had, we had a halfway house for decades. 
um, and it finally, I think, ended like around the early 2000s. Um, but I would say we had it one for 25 years, and I think it was a really important uh, program as well, helping, you know, again, this is a, a, a um, issue that confronts uh, our society, when, what happens when somebody's coming back into society after serving their time how do you reintegrate them and how do you get them into productive work and how do you, um, you know, make sure that they don't uh, offend again. Um, offshoots of that, we had sober houses, we had men and women sober houses where people that were in recovery um, were, uh, would go there and, um, you know, live a life of sobriety and again, find all those skills that they needed to reintegrate back into their lives. And then, you know, this is something that's really particular to Cleveland. I think what the main thrust of what uh, the ULA has done over the past three decades is to respond to deindustrialization. We've talked about it on the show before. When you have all the heavy industry that left, you had all the union jobs that actually unfortunately left, um, the area, the ULA uh, stepped up and really uh, confronted that and tried to help people that you know, were suddenly unemployed and suddenly dislocated and trying to figure out their life and they're trying to figure out what their next step is. They could be, you know, in their early fifties, they had about, you know, a decade or so left to work and they had to completely uh, re-engineer uh, their careers or uh, the jobs that they could do. And that, I mean, that's been like a, a you know, as the economy of Cleveland has changed, uh, the makeup of the workforce has changed, the nature of jobs have changed. And I think that's how we found ourselves in workforce development for all those years to try to think of solutions and strategies that you know, best help people that either become marginally unemployed or they're dislocated through no fault of their own. Um, and so we can talk more about that later, but, um, but a couple of other highlights I think are very unique to the ULA. Uh, we've had a very strong presence in the arts. Um, we had a couple of board members who, uh, again, were union leaders uh, who really loved the arts and they saw a need to connect labor into the arts to not only mm -hmm. understand the stories, but to have art, the arts reflect the stories of labor um, and to win hearts and minds. And so, you know, we've done everything from a photography book to we sponsored a one act play that went to off Broadway um, to we've oh, recently we've been um, sponsoring a film series at the Cleveland Museum of Art and the Cleveland Cinematheque of films that are labor uh, based or have labor themes on it. We've um, we've done a poetry book um, that has labor, you know, labor themes, and the workers as artists. So, you know, a lot of people have these hobbies or they have these interests as outside of what they uh, do for a living. And we found this like wealth of talent of people who were visual artists that you know had they go into their basement or their garage and they paint or they sculpt or they create these wonderful works of art and we highlighted their work. Uh, so that was always a great, uh, a great event as well. So, you know, it, it's, it's trying to be thoughtful about what an organization like the ULA uh, can do uh, in, in the, um, you know, in this intersection between labor and society and to really make, you know, create connections and create, services and programmings that can help our neighbors. Uh, how I actually started with uh, uh, the ULA was I created a program called the Home Maintenance Assistance Program. So I was, uh, I was up in Cleveland, I, I thought, well, you know, it's just, I see all this housing that's deteriorating, and I saw 
a lot of young people who were unemployed. So we sort of married the two things. We would get young people to um, work on the houses under union journey people Mm -hmm. uh, to train. So their their classroom was each house and each job. Um, And we ran that in the city for 15 years. Uh, We actually ended up building houses uh, new houses, uh, on some of the, uh, land bank, uh, land. Um, and you know, again, so, uh, it's, it's being aware, paying attention and trying to find a solution. I think yeah. that's, I think that's really what the, that's truly the nature uh, and the philosophy of the ULA. And that's why we've been so many things over all these years. Um, we haven't been one thing I and mean, we've never been one thing. Mm-hmm. But we've been multiple things, and uh, you know, it's sometimes too. You know, I think it. Um, then the need you have to also know when the need is no longer needed, right? We had a we had a durable medical equipment program that we delivered um, medical equipment to union members uh, at a time when it was uh, difficult for uh, that to happen. Um, but you know, as society catches up, as programs get in place as more funding becomes available in, a, in insurance or in the unions themselves, we, you know, there was no longer a need for us to do it. So we would, um, you know, we would sunset it, um, and on to the next, you know, on to the next need. So, so we've done everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> you have, you have, it, right? it's, it's a great history. It really is a great history. I mean, there's a lot of problems out there. You have to realize what needs to be paid attention to. And to come up with a fix. And that's what you've done. That's what you've yeah. done over the years. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that demand-driven model of workforce development. Because you think about so many times you get an education. I'm going to focus briefly here on, like, college. You go to college. You get a, a liberal arts education. You come out. Well, what do you do? I mean, uh, I mean you're really right. not trained for anything specific. Now, right. in the ULA, you will get the skills you need for the job because the job is there. The job mm-hmm. is there. It's so right, exactly. All right, I got to take a quick break. Dave Meganhart joining us on our live line right now. He is executive director of the United Labor Agency. Do check out their website, ulagency.org. Later in the show, we're going to check in with two very bright ladies from the Rand Corporation. They did a study on manufacturing and they zeroed in on Ohio. They're going to talk about that as well. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A.org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today 
Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at USW.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, OH.AFT. Org is our website. Let's go back to our live line. Rejoin Dave Meganhart, Executive Director of the United Labor Agency, ULAgency.org. Gave you a little rundown of their history in the first segment. Let's talk about what's coming up here. I want to get to the Unsung Heroes Dinner. But first, mental health services. Boy, this is a huge issue. Huge mm-hmm. issue. Not just in, in this area, but around the country. We did... Uh, we did a number of shows, you know, uh, September was suicide prevention month and suicide is very prevalent in the trades. We zeroed in on mental health and suicide and uh, ULA, no exception here. What, uh, what, what's at play here? What, what, what kind of services are you providing, Dave? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, through our work and again, through paying attention and, and just uh, being out in, out in the field uh, and like everyone else, we realize that there's a huge need for mental health services and you know what we've really seen is through our workforce development uh, work you know the people that were coming in um, had uh, a lot of you know a lot of issues that were confronting them and you know our counselors uh, at, are trained to do workforce development and how to get people jobs and they we found that they were becoming less and less uh, able to cope with the issues that the, the people that were bringing in so we've uh, decided to create a, uh, the ULA Counseling Center. So the ULA Counseling Center will do mental health um, counseling uh, through everybody, but we will, certainly will be focusing on uh, unions and being able to get to uh, those folks, as you said, like the, you know, a lot of suicide in the trades, you know, to try to be able to uh, find uh, those uh, people in distress uh, before something tragic happens. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, and get them into therapy, right? So I know, you know, there's a, a lot of times with men, there's a lot of stigma, there's a lot of things about weakness. I think that's changing over, you know, that I think that there's more uh, awareness that it's not weak to go seek help, that it's actually strong. It's actually, you have to be very strong and you have to be, um, you have to be able to be able to uh, you have to hold your hand out to try to get some help. And we want to be there to uh, keep get people through rough times. So we will, um, you know, we're about a couple of months out from actually having the services up and running because we have to hire people and we have to get all of our licensures and all that. But we have a new clinical director who's helping to create the um, uh, create the service. Um, we will have an independent office um, uh, probably in December is what we hope. Um, but certainly by January we'll be seeing uh, clients. 
And I think that it's, again, it's that next step uh, in the morphine or the adaptation of ULA uh, to be able to understand what the need is and, and to take all of our administrative capability, all of our history, all of our uh, knowledge and bring it to this issue and to be able to help, you know, and be able to like really provide, I think the key is to provide great service, right? We want to be able to provide, that's the most important thing is to provide great service and then see where it goes from there. And um, so we're very excited about the possibility of this new, uh, a new initiative. I think it's going to be um, uh, very beneficial. Uh, I think that it's, and again, I think it's unique too, because we will be focusing uh, at first certainly on uh, union members, right? Where that's mm-hmm. going to be the first outreach and say, look, we're here and um, we can provide help. And the nice thing too about providing the service, even in conjunction with workforce development, in workforce development, we don't have the number of meetings or the number of um, appointments that you would need to try to work through a mental health crisis, right? So a lot of times we can meet with somebody two, three, four times and that can you know, just the just the beginning of a counseling uh, session or a relationship. So we'll be able to extend that and be able to get deeper into the issues that could be confronting somebody that's causing them to, you know, because you know that could be causing them to have a barrier to get employment as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so so we're excited about that for sure. Well, keep me posted on that because we yeah, want to sure. get that information to our listeners here. That's very very important. All right. right. Let's talk about the the dinner coming up here, the unsung heroes of the labor movement. And I'll tell you, this this should be a huge celebration. As you know, Dave, there's been some huge victories for organized labor. Look at what happened with with the UAW, with the Teamsters. I mean, there's so many, so many unions that are organizing like never before right now. So this is the time, and this is the time to celebrate. So talk to me about this dinner coming up in a couple of weeks. Right. So again, every year we uh, we we uh, host the Unsung Heroes Dinner. Uh, this year it's going to be at the Great Lake Science Center, uh, which is a new venue for us. Uh, and I there's going to be even some experiments where I think we can light each other on fire. Which I don't know. Hopefully that'll go all right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm, I'm the MC been, on this. I don't know, I know. about this. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told it's safe. I've been told it's safe. I, just, I, just, okay, I trust okay. the scientists. I trust the scientists. So. Um, um, and you know, so we have, uh, so what happens is we have rank and file members come up and they've, you know, these are brothers and sisters that have done yeoman's work for their unions. They've, you know, they've given volunteer hours, they've supported people, they've done ever just kind of like tireless and, uh, selfless. And, you know, it's nice because this is an opportunity for them. They didn't ever think they'd be awarded something. They're not doing it for an award or they're not doing it for any kind of recognition. And then this recognition comes. Um, and I'll give you an example. I, this is one that, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go through all of them. We probably have like nine, nine heroes this year, but, uh, this one guy, his name's Wesley Bean and he's from the Youngstown Education Association. So he's a member of NEOEA. Um, and so he's a teacher and, you know, teacher teaching is a hard job, right? It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, Looking of a, you know, you do have there every day here, every day trying to get students educated and, uh, that in itself is kind of an unsung hero, but beyond that. So he went ahead and he created this newsletter and they called it on the line newsletter. 
And what he would do is he'd summarize, you know, this information for the Youngstown Education Association members, you know, and, uh, you know, he, there were strike-related topics. It was dispelling rumors, you know, trying to quell innuendo, which, you know, could be rampant uh, during uh, contract negotiations. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of bad information that could be uh, passed around. Um, and so, you know, he's doing this as the strike is going on. Uh, and, but he did it such a, so well, like the, the, the newsletter looked like professional and people couldn't believe that it was one guy per, you know, putting it out. And he's like, newspaper professionals were like, wow, who do you have doing this newsletter? And it's like, well, it's a guy, it's Wesley Bean guy. And they were shocked, right? Cause it was like so well done. And, uh, he did it every day. He, he published it every day of the strike. Um, and he in handling all the communication for the negotiating team. Which, you know, is, again, something that, like, he just stepped up and did it. He didn't have necessarily formal training in this. He didn't have, like, he wasn't getting paid for it. But it helped them through the strike, right? It's helped them through uh, this very contentious time. And so that's kind of the, uh, the, the genesis of this. This is the, that's, a, you know, the thing that we want to celebrate is that, you know, you're going through this contentious you know, and always strikes are, you know, never good. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, you know, stepping up to you know, give your own time and to volunteer and to make it easier for people to get through that, you know, by providing information, by, by, by having, having, you know, good open communication by, you know, just being uh, a person that can step up. And that's, that's what the kind of thing we celebrate. I love that. Boy, communication is key. I mean, that's that's a good reason why we do this show five yeah, exactly. days a week. You know, we, we want to get messages out to our union brothers and sisters. And, you know, I got to salute on that note. Sean Fain, here's a perfect example. He was putting videos out every day talking to mm-hmm. members. Hey, here's where we are. Here's where we're mm-hmm. going. And that mm-hmm. didn't happen in years past. So hats off to Wesley Bean. I can't, uh, can't wait to meet him. That's yeah, going to be right. no, November 16th. Our, okay, now, people listening right now, tickets available for this event? Where do, where do they go? They go to the ulagency.org. Uh, there's a uh, Unsung Heroes event page. You can register online. You can pay online. Um, and that's the easiest way to find us. There you go. Thursday, November 16th, Great Lakes Science Museum, right next to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum unsung heroes of the labor movement. Dave Meganhart, thank you so much. Thank you for the sponsorship. Looking forward to seeing you and the team there. Okay, brother? Okay. Looking forward to it. All right. ULAgency.org, that website again. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to join two ladies on the West Coast. They did some incredible research on manufacturing in the state of Ohio. They're going to talk about it next. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Lyuna. Find out what it takes for Lyuna to keep America running at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. 
The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Iron Workers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or X. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. You know, here on the show, we talk a lot about manufacturing we lost a lot of manufacturing jobs to china over the last 20 25 years a lot of those jobs are coming back and we're trying to educate more young people to go into manufacturing well i have two guests on our live line today christine mulhern and lisa abraham both work for the rand corporation both are economists both are from the midwest one in pennsylvania lisa is from uh, Ohio, right outside Cleveland in Kent, Ohio. Christine Mulhern is from central Pennsylvania. Both went to Harvard University, got their uh, PhD at Harvard, both economists, and are here to talk about manufacturing and making sure that young people that get involved in manufacturing stay in manufacturing. Now, Christine, I want to start with you. Because you just came out with a report, the Rand Corporation came out with this report, strengthening the manufacturing workforce in Ohio. This, by the way, is available at rand.org. Lisa, what's going on here? Because apparently uh, less than 40% of students with a manufacturing-related credential, well, they're leaving. They're leaving. Some of them are going to less-paying jobs. Can you explain the the uh, the results of this uh, of this report that just came out go ahead sure thank you so much uh, for having us on today uh, as you mentioned the study examines ways to strengthen the manufacturing sector in ohio and to do this we look at the education to employment pipeline for workers in the sector and as you mentioned we see this really surprising finding where students who have the uh, manufacturing related credentials are actually choosing to work in other industries and so that um, is an important consideration when we're looking to bolster the supply of workers and also improve the diversity within the sector. So where are they going? I mean, they've got the credentials. They're making relatively decent money. Why are they leaving? Do we know that part yet? 
Yeah, it's a great question, um, and it's one that's going to require more research. We don't see particular industries drawing away these students that have manufacturing-related skills, uh, so they don't seem to be siphoned off into one particular other sector. Uh, we also don't know whether the attrition is coming from students' own preferences, so you know their knowledge about the industry and you know what they desire in terms of their work versus uh, employer-specific demands, right? So perhaps employers thinking that students don't have the requisite skills. And so that's, um, you know, one of the policy recommendations in the report is to be able to dig in more on that issue and try to understand why, um, why the attrition is happening from education to employment. Lisa, let's go to you. Lisa Abraham here. You were part of this report. Um, here's, uh, here's something I want to talk about, the demographic differences and uh, apparently, what is it, like 80% of the young people that are involved in uh, manufacturing, 80% are white, more than 85% male. Maybe you could pick up on that. And I'm just wondering, too, can we, uh, can we change that here? There's, there's a lot of outreach going to, out to underserved communities because we're talking good jobs. And we often deal with the building trades on this show and we call it the pathway to the middle class. You know, there's, there are better jobs out there. You just got to get trained for them. Can you explain what's going on here, Lisa? Right. So we do see that the manufacturing workforce is predominantly um, white and male workers, and that has been steady over time. Uh, and so there is an emphasis within the sector um, and also from educational institutions to try and find how to draw in more women and workers of color. Um, we do see some bright spots. So we see that women and Asians are pursuing more higher level degrees in manufacturing, so bachelor's degrees are higher, and that suggests that education might be one pathway towards drawing in new and diverse types of workers. What about wages here? Because the manufacturing, I often call this advanced manufacturing, and I don't know if you got into that into the report, but the, the manufacturing of today is much different than years past. Can you speak to that? And, and where are the wages with those jobs? Because we are trying to get more of those jobs away from, you know, Mexico and China that disappeared over the years. They're coming back in different forms. How, how are the wages looking right now? So the wages in manufacturing are looking pretty good for the most part. So we see that the people who have manufacturing credentials that enter manufacturing are earning higher wages than their peers who have the same credentials but are working in different industries. And so this does suggest kind of these wage premiums to entering the manufacturing workforce. Um, we also see, not just from our report, but kind of some from the other research in this space, that a lot of the growth in demand for workers in manufacturing is driven by these higher skilled, uh, more advanced jobs. And so this is where the education pipeline becomes really important. Employers are saying they need more workers who have the skills um, in advanced manufacturing and the training opportunities for these workers. And so trying to understand kind of where are these students, how can we get more of them in here to meet the evolving needs of advanced manufacturing. Well, if you don't mind, and either one of you can pick up on this one, I'm reading in the report that among manufacturing workers, retention is lower for women than among men, and wages are lower for women and people of color relative to male and white workers with similar education. Now we, we've got a, we've got a problem in this country. I know both of you 
I know you're very well educated on this, and it just baffles me that there's such disparity just because you are a woman, you're getting paid less. Can, either one of you can pick up on this. I'm sure this has to concern you. Go ahead. Right. I mean, this was the topic of uh, the person who won the Nobel Prize this week, Claudia Golden. All of her research focuses on why we see these big disparities, right, for women in particular. Um, and it's true within the manufacturing sector. We see that women and workers of color earn less. And this could be partly driven by the occupations that they hold, right, which is unfortunately something that we don't, um, we aren't able to look into in our data. But it suggests that there needs to be more work within the sector to understand the career trajectories of these workers, right? What are the upskilling opportunities that they're getting? Who are their mentors? What are their supports? And what are also the amenities within the sector that might need to be changed? So, for example, understanding the role of flexible work um, that, you know, can help individuals be able to uh, be drawn into the sector because the situation has changed such that they can participate more actively in this type of work. Christine, I want to go back to you, Christine Mulhern, who is also one of the authors of this RAND Corporation study. And, and I see previously you studied the effects of high school counselors on educational attainment, dual enrollment programs, educational technologies, and this one really caught my attention, inequality in education. All right, we talked about... Uh, the differences here, male, female, and wages. Can you speak to what, what's going on here? Uh, inequality in education. Is that because in some communities they're not funded properly and as a result they're not getting what they should be getting? Is that part of it? Yes. I mean, there's a lot going on when you talk about inequality in education. I think some of the things that maybe resonate with some of this work is um, inequality in access to learning opportunities so when we talk about career technical education or dual enrollment, some opportunities that are helpful for students learning about different career or education pathways. We see pretty different access to and participation in these programs across schools. And so if we're thinking about how to draw students into um, advanced manufacturing or other technical fields, career technical education can be really important for helping students uh, gain access to these opportunities. We know there's also a lot of inequality in funding. Um, I've looked at some inequality in access to funding and to, to different school personnel who we think are helpful for um, helping students navigate their opportunities um, or kind of really good teachers. There, there's inequality on most dimensions in education, so kind of it depends where you want to go with this. But I think um, there are a lot of ways in which this inequality in education in um, earlier grades kind of contributes to differences that we see in what students are doing in higher education or the workforce just because of their awareness of different opportunities or access to uh, pathways that lead into different career options. Do you have any comment on the role of um, high school counselors here? And, and, you know, we do a lot, as I mentioned previously, with the building trades because they're pushing people to the trades because there's a lot of good work available. And, and it's, it's technically free education. When you go to the apprenticeship programs, you earn while you learn. But there's a lot of counselors. And, Christine, maybe you could pick up on this. Lisa, if you want to chime in, that would be great as well. But the counselors, they seem to be graded on how many students they send to college and say, oh, this high school is great because 99% of our kids are going to 
advanced learning colleges, and they're going on to get their MBAs and PhDs and all that. I'm just wondering, you know, with the fact that we've got a lot of manufacturing opportunities that may not require that, I mean, some of them are maybe associate's degrees, two-year degrees, and things of that, of that nature. But um, the role of counselors, is that something that should be in flux right now, saying, wait a minute, you know, the world's changing. Maybe you don't want to go to college. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the parts that I kind of know best are about kind of what, what are some of the impacts that our counselors are having on students. And so we know that counselors can have a lot of influence over the pathways that students are having. Um, and so kind of, I think, thinking really strategically about that, kind of what, what is some of the guidance we want to provide to them? What training are the counselors receiving on kind of the opportunities out there? We know that kind of providing counselors more information about different types of opportunities can influence uh, what their students go on to do. And so I think there is a lot of room to think about counselors as a leverage point um, when we're thinking about the uh, guidance and decisions that students are making. Uh, and so kind of a lot of them, most of them have gone to four-year institutions, have bachelor's degrees or master's degrees themselves. And so they have a lot of awareness of that pathway. But in some places, there may be less awareness of some of these other options. And so I think kind of uh, providing them resources to help their students think about some of the other options out there may be valuable. Well, the title of the report, again, is Strengthening the Manufacturing Workforce in Ohio, and it is available online at rand.org. Uh, I'm just wondering here, um, do you see more studies? Is there going to be, uh, do you go to other states? I mean, this one you focused on Ohio, and I know both of you, have roots in the Midwest here. I'm just wondering, what's the next step? Uh, Lisa, you want to pick that, pick up on that one? Sure, uh, definitely. We see this as the beginning of this work, um, which was generously funded by Lumina Foundation, and Lumina is particularly interested in understanding these pathways from education to employment and specifically for workers of color. So, you know, we chose Ohio because of the strong presence of the manufacturing sector in the state, as well as our um, really wonderful data partners uh, that were able to make this possible, but we certainly hope to be able to look at other states and other contexts and try to draw policy conclusions from, um, you know, those other states as well. I think it's going to take a lot of work to figure out where the gaps are and how to meet the demand that we know is um, going to come in the future. All right. I'll leave it on that note. Lisa Abraham, Rand Corporation economist, Harvard educated, and Christine Mulhern, also a Rand Corporation economist and Harvard education. I, you know what? My intelligence level went up just because of this conversation. So, so thank you. Thank you very much for joining us here on America's Workforce. Okay. Thank you so much for having us. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, the IBEW and the steam fitters. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.